You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual, ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you this fine day? Uh, Giles, it's uh, good to be here on the podcast uh, chatting with you and I trust all our listeners are enjoying the show well, we're getting a lot of good feedback from from people. Um, I got a got a got an email the other day from um, England, another one from Germany, saying big fans of the podcast. And of course, we know from when we do turn up at conferences and other things in in, in Australia that um, we um, got a lot of um, listeners, and we thank you for it. Look, today, good little um, good little lineup of things. We'll get to the interview later. You've interviewed during the week Brendan Mackey uh, from Professor Brendan Mackey, I should say, uh, from Griffith. University and an author of the IPCC. But look, let's cover off on a bit of the news this week. Um, last week we heard that the RET was met um, and uh, or would be as soon as the projects which have now been committed will be built. But the Clean Energy Council came out this week, David, with a rather, ooh, you know, pretty down, downcast forecast, if that's, a, if that's a good expression, saying that um, investment, committed investment, new committed investment, likely to fall towards Abbott era levels. Um, it's curious, isn't it? Because the pipeline of projects has never been bigger. Just just um, this week, we've heard Neowen talking about this huge wind, solar and battery proposal in South Australia. But while lots of people are talking about new projects, it's true to say that the actual committed projects has died down a lot. I think that's that's fair, but it hasn't died down to zero. There's still quite a lot of projects actually still under construction, as, as you've pointed out. That's point one. Uh, point two, uh, we, we can't really keep or couldn't have kept building at the pace we were building at the past few years because, as, as, as the system has pointed out, it just can't uh, keep up with that pace of new, new development. We, we're still using all these very old-fashioned synchronous condensers and the transmission system is just uh, uh, straining under the load. So, in a sense, a pause uh, or a slowdown um, is, 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 is not... The end of, it's the end of the world from some perspective, but it's not that bad from others. And the third point is that, of course, it's economics. I mean, with uh, prices in the middle of the day uh, being close to zero, it's a brave solar developer that wants to go out there. All those things said, uh, I actually think that we will continue to see a flow of new projects. There are still state government adi- uh, initiatives like the Queensland government, um, uh, perhaps the ACT government, uh, and there are still, uh, we've got Snowy's projects and then uh, last few weeks we've seen Infogen which bought some more gas firming and said it, can, it wants to add another I think 600 megawatts of uh, ge- re- renewable generation to that it will be able to firm up so there are still things going on in the market uh, and uh, Abbott era uh, um, look I don't like even mentioning that name anymore <laughs> 
no, look quite right. Yes. Um, look, it would be useful if there was a pause to actually do something useful, um, as you suggest, and sort of, you know, um, maybe unlock those policy mechanisms and some of the rewriting of the rules and get going on the integrated system plan and make sure that we do have the capacity when so Giles, investment does resume. This is the key point, you know. The key point is not that renewable energy needs a subsidy, but it needs a policy. It is not enough that uh, renewable energy is cheaper than, even if it was cheaper than existing energy, to force its way into the market. The right investment uh, signal comes with a policy uh, that says that we're going to introduce more renewable energy to decarbonise the, the system. So, yes, the economics are there, but policy is required, in my opinion, as well as that. Now, talking about policy, um, we do. Um, I'm going to mention the Abbott name once more because during his reign, the policy, the, the the investment did go down pretty close to zero. It was saved only at the time by the ACT government, and its 640 megawatts of um, reverse auctions led by Simon Corbell at the time to meet its 100% renewable energy target. Now, in October, from October the first, it will pretty much meet that target because the Hornsdale Three Wind Farm, which is the last of those contracted projects to actually sort of start delivering on its contract, even though it's been operating for a while, it will actually sort of focus its output towards the ACT. So it'll meet its 100% target. But interestingly enough, the ACT government has come out and said, we're going to do another auction. This time, 250 megawatts of wind or solar and including 20 megawatt, 40 megawatt hours of battery storage. And I think the interesting thing here, David, is that this is really about, well, one, to take into account of economic growth and population growth, but the other one because they're looking to electrify transport and electrify their buildings, pretty much kick gas out of the um, out of the building architecture in the ACT over the longer term, so they'll be using more electricity. So um, this is the first act of a reasonably sizable government, I mean, even though Canberra probably is reasonably small, but not significant enough, of really going the next stage down the track to 100 to decarbonisation. Uh, yes, and and as you say, uh, it's the ACT government's been a leader on many occasions, and yeah, there's not much more to say about that except that uh, I do think we, most of the many of the new contracts are going to come with a affirming uh, sort of requirement. Uh, yes, well, I'd, I'd, I'd say well done, and and they are going to. It's going to be interesting to see how that's packaged up with the battery storage. Um, interestingly, that it's going to be a ten-year contract for contract for difference rather than twenty years, um, which I guess is some evolution in the market. Look, just before we get onto the interview with Brendan Mackey, I just want to touch. Um, you, you just mentioned it in your in your comments earlier about the negative pricing happening in the midday. Geez, we saw an awful lot of it happen over the last month in Queensland. Um, what have you got any particular perspective on that? I mean, the prices went down really low late last week, partly or probably mostly because of the um, interconnector constraint, which sort of prevented Queensland from exporting to New South Wales. But uh, it was interesting to note that we saw a lot of solar farms actually shut off on, on two of those days. So, Giles, I, th I, think the, I think the consensus story that's emerged is that, in fact, it was a contracting strategy. Um, it, without wanting to take too long about it, if you're a coal generator and you've got a contract for differences for 500 megawatts, if you produce exactly 500 megawatts, you, you're indifferent to the price. You know, it's minus a thousand uh, or it's plus a thousand. It, it comes to nothing. But uh, let's say your, your contract price is, uh, is uh, I don't know, $60 for the sake of argument uh, and, uh, all of, and you only produce uh, 300 megawatts yourself and you can buy the other 200 megawatts out of the market at minus $1,000, guess what? You've vastly improved your cash flow. Now, I didn't, uh, I'm not the person that came up with that idea. Uh, others in the industry did. Uh, I'd give a credit to Alan O'Neill for pointing this out. But uh, 
Uh, that, that, I think, has got a lot to explain it in the short term. But the, point, uh, the bigger point as well is that uh, if the pool prices go down, they are a reliable leading indicator of what's going to happen to contract prices in the future. Because after all, if everyone sees you can buy in the pool at you know, zero, why are you going to sign a contract for 60? So it, it's, it may be good news for the coal generators in the short term, even allowing for the fact that Cogan Creek was offline, but it's probably not good news for them in the longer term. And the still bigger point is that if they've been able to export more power to New South Wales, uh, then, then that would have benefited both states in a sense. Uh, so we still need this more transmission. It's the number one blockage in the whole system. Thanks for that explanation, David. I'm going to accept that. Um, now let's get back on to the interview with Professor Brenton Mackey. Well, even uh, before we go there, sorry, sorry, I just also wanted to mention all these comments, and you've written about it already, uh, about do we need to give some subsidy for coal generation? No, we need to tax coal generation because it emits carbon. Sorry, I uh, and we could say a lot more about that, but I just wanted to get that out there. Oh, well, no, that's quite... No, we're going to come back to that after the interview with Brenton Mackey because... Oh, <laughs> no, um, because, look, um, this is all about climate change. It's a slightly different pace from us. Now, Professor Brendan Mackey is um, is a uh, is from Griffith University. He was a lead author on the IPCC report. And look, climate change has come back into focus in the last week or two. One, because of the incredibly early bushfire season um, happening in New South Wales and Queensland. Um, we've seen it come up in, in Parliament. And I've got to say from the coalition government, um, it hasn't been... Um, you know, well, it's actually been pretty, um, pretty awful, really. I mean, the, the the drought minister can't even bring himself to mention climate change. Angus Taylor stood up for ten minutes talking about climate change without actually mentioning the words um, on Wednesday. Um, they had a new LNP. Um, so they're looking increasingly isolated, Charles. Uh, I think that's the point. And and look, let, let's let us into what Brendan had to say. He's pretty good on the uh, looking at the land use side of things, which is which is not something we talk about every day here on Energy Insiders, but it's an important topic. And he can explain carbon in terms of the stock of it as well as the flow. So here we go. I just wanted to ask Brendan just a little bit of the backstory. I uh, I. Uh, started to take climate change seriously myself in 2006 when my boss at UBS and Investment Bank uh, asked me as the utilities analyst how, how seriously it should be taken and I guess uh, sometime around then or a bit before we'd seen the Al Gore movie. I don't want to spend too long on this but I mean I just wondered briefly about your own personal journey into being uh, uh, the director of the Climate Change Response Program. How long you've been interested and what got you motivated in the first place? Yes, well, I've been in this position for, this is my ninth year at Griffith University, and I moved to Griffith to take up the position of director of this program, <clears throat> which has been, which we set up uh, on the premise that climate change is everyone's business, uh, to, use that, to use that catch catchphrase. Climate change is something which permeates every aspect of our society and therefore is of relevance to every discipline uh, of the academy. And on top of that, being a, you know, what we like to call a wicked problem of humans and the environment, it's one that very much requires an interdisciplinary approach. Climate change impacts on every kind of uh, sector of our society, but it's not a problem that can be solved by any one discipline working along, uh, working alone. It very much needs this interdisciplinary collaborative approach. So my program was set up. We set up my program in order to facilitate that that approach to addressing the climate change problem. 
prior to that, I worked at the Australian National University for quite a long time. And uh, before that, other places, I worked for CSIRO. I've also worked as a research scientist for the Canadian Forest Service. And throughout my entire academic life, uh, you know, climate and climate and how climate impacts on our ecologies, on our biodiversity, on our land uses, on our how we function as a society, on our economy has been growing more and more evident. And my research has always involved or factored in climate and increasingly over my lifetime as, the, as the, just the empirical evidence for how how much and how rapidly and the ways, complex ways in which our, our earth system was changing and, and how the climate system was was changing became more and more evident. So when this opportunity came up at Griffith University to, uh, you know, really focus, be able to focus, you know, my my whole attention on this problem, you know, I, I grasped the opportunity with, with both hands. But I guess the... Um, uh, uh, I, I really started to come to grips with it very early on when I was doing my PhD, uh, which was looking at uh, the, the environmental drivers of rainforests, um, rainforest ecology uh, up in the wet tropics of Queensland and uh, you know, climate, cl the, climatic the climatic gradients there are, are very steep and, and, and the climate signal in rainforest ecology you know, was very strong. Uh, that's great, Brendan, and uh, 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 I, I'm always interested in how people come to be motivated. Now, I believe your particular area of expertise is uh, land use, and uh, uh, my understanding is there's about 40 gigatons uh, of carbon dioxide emitted per year in the world, and that's about 20 years or something worth of, uh, uh, to get to a two degree target or something like that, 25 years. And that land use contributes, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 percent of that total. Is uh, historically it was more, but of course with the rise of fuel, fuel, carbon emitting fuels, it's it's become less. Uh, yeah, those numbers are, are basically correct. Though I would describe my area of expertise as really being about forests and land. So it's it's the from a science point of view, it's about the role of terrestrial ecosystems in the global carbon cycle and then the impact that land use has on the on those uh, terrestrial carbon dynamics to use a to use a technical term but but to put more simply you know uh, uh, ecosystems store vast amounts of carbon there's far more carbon stored in the world's forests than what there is in the atmosphere so uh, and forests naturally exchange carbon with the atmosphere and as the atmosphere does with the oceans. So if you like, there's been two sources of, of uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from human activity. Uh, uh, Two-thirds of the additional carbon that's in the atmosphere has come from humans burning uh, fossil fuel, especially over the last... 100 years or so for energy, oil, uh, coal and natural gas. But a third of it has come from deforestation and forest degradation. So what drives climate change is the accumulated stock of carbon in the atmosphere over time 
And if we look at that accumulated stock that's up there now, a third of it, a third of it has come from deforestation and degradation and about, and about two-thirds from using fo- fossil fuel. On, a, on an annual basis, as you say, because of the rapid accelerated use of fossil fuel to drive uh, uh, economic growth, then we um, see the, that, that percentage attribution has changed. So it's, about, it's somewhere between 10 or 15%, depend on how you account for it. So it's still, it's still extremely significant component. Oh, no doubt about that. And uh, you always have to remind yourself as, a, as an accountant that the, the climate change thing is about there's a stock of carbon, which your articles point out in the world, which, which never changes. It's just uh, where it's located, whether it's contained within the coal or oil or gas or, or forests or, or ocean. Or, yeah, that's or right. This uh, is the building up in the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And this is uh, kind of an interesting, you know, scientific fact that when it comes to uh, energy, Earth is a is a kind of an open system. We receive energy from the sun, and and we emit heat. En- Earth emits heat energy into the into the into the surrounding um, universe, uh, and we have this thing called a greenhouse effect which are these gases which trap some of that heat energy within the atmosphere, which is a good thing. If we had no greenhouse gas um, effect, Earth would be a terribly cold place to live. It would be like, I don't know, Canberra in winter all the time. Imagine that. Uh, uh, <laughs> not like the Gold Coast this morning, but go on, or Sunshine Coast, not, but go on, yes. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not the pleasant uh, southern end of the Gold Coast where I'm currently sitting, though... We should talk about fires before we finish our discussion this morning because uh, um, my, my visibility is very low due to the smoke. Uh, no, I've got, a do- I've got a daughter who lives up very close to that, yeah. uh, Brendan. So, 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 so mate, we- coming, back to the, coming back to the point, but when it comes to um, um, uh, chemical substances like carbon, it's a closed system. So all the carbon that's here was created when kind of Earth was created and it ain't going anywhere. So if it's not in... Uh, the form of fossil fuel in the ground. It's in the atmosphere. If it's not in the atmosphere, it's in ecosystems or it's in the ocean. Actually, most of the carbon that's in the active part of the system is in the ocean. But, uh, yeah, so as an accountant or someone with accountancy knowledge, you know that as well as flows, what's really important is stocks. And one of the problems we've had is we haven't been understanding the role of the land stocks in this story. So I want to come back to that. And in particular, I think it uh, brings us on to one of the main points that uh, you try to make in your various publications that I've looked at and very easy to read and good publications they are too, I might say. Um, uh, 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 And that is that essentially it's far more valuable to preserve existing forests in terms or and to regrow uh, forests, uh, uh, you know, reconnect them, I think is the word you use, rather than just uh, going around planting trees. I mean, there's somewhere between, I don't know, 20 to 40 times more valuable to to keep, to keep a, an, an old tree alive, in a sense, or not cut it down, than it is to plant than to plant new ones, and that the life cycle of carbon contained within trees is pretty short once you cut the tr- tree down. Have I, have I kind of got the thrust of it there? So, look, in order to actually reduce the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide, you have to keep carbon out of the atmosphere for a very long period of time. So 
what's really critical is not, if you like, the instantaneous rate at which carbon is being sequestered in, uh, in, in you know, into a into a forest or to or, or to a tree. It's it's the size of the stock of carbon and how long it's kept uh, out of the atmosphere for. So if we go back to kind of in a, a financial analogy with a with a savings account, okay, you've got a savings account with uh, uh, you know a hundred dollars in it, and it's earning five percent interest. Would you rather th that, or would you ra rather have a bank account with a million dollars in it, earning five percent interest, right? So, so the kind of instantaneous rate at which carbon's being sequestered into a tree is is not the point. Um, from a climate change point of view, what's what's important is how much carbon is there in that in that forest stock and 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 its longevity. How long is that carbon going to be kept out of the atmosphere? So if you have uh, uh, old growth forests with a very large amount of carbon in it, the best mitigation strategy is to protect it, right? To avoid it being uh, you know cleared and burnt and you know cleared, logged and burnt and put back into the atmosphere. Because if you then plant a tree, it will take you decades to centuries to, re, to regrow that depleted stock of carbon. Because that's all you're doing. If you're planting a tree, uh, that tree is, is, is growing where there used to be a forest before it was cleared. So what you're actually doing when you, when you uh, plant a new tree in that, in that landscape is you're actually refilling a previously depleted um, forest carbon stock. Okay, so you know the number the number one uh, uh, imperative we have at the moment is to avoid emissions. Like, in order to limit global warming to you know to below this one point five degree threshold, which we've heard about through the most recent IPCC special report, which will avoid a lot of the most dangerous irreversible climate impacts. You know, we need to reduce emissions by uh, forty five to fifty percent. By 2030, from a 2010 baseline, and net zero by 2050. Well, you know we need uh, mitigation strategies that work now, and one of those is to avoid emissions. So the priority, I would argue, is to avoid emissions, and one way of doing that is by protecting the forest ecosystem stocks we currently have. The so, second, so yeah. so sorry, Brendan. I just want to ask on that particular point. I mean. Uh, uh, I think Australia, for instance, doesn't have, I mean, uh, maybe I'm underestimating it, a huge amount of these old growth forests on a world scale. Very briefly, is that a fair statement? Well, Australia is one of the world's top, you know, 10 forested countries, especially when you include our more open forests, what, you know, what we call our woodlands. The rest of the world, you know, calls that forests. And so, uh, you know, we are still uh, relentlessly, uh, you know, uh, logging and in many cases, you know, wood chipping um, our, our, our remaining primary forests. Um, but there's a second opportunity too. Where, where we have forests that have been logged, what this means is that they, they, they haven't been deforested, but their carbon stocks have been depleted because most of the carbon is in the woody biomass of big old trees. So when you log and take out those trees, that forest is well below its natural carbon carrying capacity. Well, what that means is there's enormous 
sequestration potential. Like if we stop logging the forest and allow it to regrow, right, we can refill that depleted carbon stock. And there's a term for that now. Uh, we call it proforestation. So we can look at the primary forest we have and protect that. That avoids emissions by protecting that accumulated carbon stock. And where we have forests that have had their carbon stocks depleted, we can allow them to naturally regenerate and 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 restore uh, the depleted carbon stocks back to their natural carbon carrying capacity. Uh, I, I, I must say, I can't get away from the... It's, the more I look at climate change, the more intertwined it gets with the... Uh, issue about the world's population, which has gone from something like 1 billion in 1900 to something like approaching 8 billion in only another 120 years. I don't want to dwell on this topic and I don't want us to uh, get too far away in the end from, from straight decarbonisation. But uh, I guess let me ask you this question. In, in studying this, what is the best form of policy to actually pr to to encourage uh, what was the term you used again? Uh, pro well pro forest well pro, pro forestation. Pro forestation. What sort of policies do we, do we would if you were a policy maker would you have to to make that happen? Yeah. So what we really need to do is have it 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 really does come down to looking very carefully at our land and and how we use it and having a much better understanding of all the benefits, uh, you know, we call them, we call them the, the ecosystem service benefits, the benefits that people get from the services that ecosystems provide and, and where and how we're growing our food and, and, and fibre. So, of course, much of the deforestation and degradation that, that's occurred has been to clear land for growing food and fibre of one kind or another. But even if we just look at wood supply... Australia currently gets about 85% of all its wood supply from plantations, which take up less than 10% of the forest cover. Globally, uh, it, we're probably getting 50% of the world's wood supply from, for, from plantations, which cover only about 6% of the world's forest. I mean, it's the same reason why we don't, go, we don't feed ourselves by harvesting wild wheat, right? It's not particularly efficient. The fact of the matter is we've got you know, we've got a we've got a we've got a, a, a industry structural problem. We've got underinvestment in the plantation sector, and not only that, in in if you like the vertical and the horizontal integration of that sector. We're still exporting logs, right? We have very little value adding in Australia. The forestry operations that are that are profitable in Australia are plantation based. And they're very well integrated with manuf you know, the, with um, with with uh, 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 manufacturing manufactured wood products. So you know, we 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 know that globally we waste about half of the world's food through inefficiencies of one kind or another. So you know, so much of the land base has been cleared in Australia and elsewhere, and we're using it poorly. So I think this is a case of we can have our cake and eat it too if we make much better use of our land. We can, with uh, with uh, sensible policy, attract the investment we need to have uh, to supply all of our wood needs through through integrated plantation and and value add added manufactured wood pro product generation. We can make far more uh, efficient use of our of our fertile land. 
for 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 growing food and and related crops, and and then we can you know value economically the benefits we get from the 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 carbon mitigation value of protecting primary forests and of and of proforestation, but you know this can't uh, you know this this does require. Uh, 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 really, an integrated public policy that brings together, you know, land use, um, commodity production, um, carbon mitigation, when it, you know, in an integrated way uh, for, for for land use policy. Indeed, it requires a carbon price or a carbon tax or something like that. But I mean, essentially, it's going to be uh, a hard. I mean, the policy seems to lead towards rewarding people for not clearing land is 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 um, because in essence that's uh keeping carbon contained that would otherwise be emitted is that where you get to well what i was trying to explain before is that we need a we need an integrated response uh integrated policy response to how we're managing and losing uh, managing and using our land you know we 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 need to understand the role that that the land plays in mitigation, in, in, in carbon mitigation, the role it plays in food production and fibre production and, and even now energy production. There's a finite amount of land and we need to look at how we can use the land you know, optimally. Um, but you know, this, this, this requires a level of policy development and, and cross-sectoral collaboration that would be unprecedented in Australia's history. I mean, we can't even no, get our we, act, we, we can't even get our act no, together on water, for goodness sake. No, we, we, we know we're near it. I mean, that's the trouble. I mean, and this is what uh, if hardheads in the stock market are going to say. You, what you say is absolutely fine in theory, but it's it's like a million. It's so far away from reality. I can safely ignore well, it. Well, look, we I can mean, we can solve this problem very simply by applying conventional neoclassical economics, and that's just internalising all the environmental costs of all these land use activities, which we don't do. So currently, you know, we know the fossil fuel industry is in total subsidised by public funds to the tune of between forty to $50,000 billion a year. We know that native forest logging is subsidised in every state where it occurs. You know, we, we, uh, uh, we don't have a level playing field. We don't, we don't have a price on carbon, whether it's through a tax or a cap-and-trade scheme or whatever mechanism market-based mechanism people would like to use. So, you know, yes, at the moment we have got, uh, we've got a lot of perverse subsidies, economically perverse subsidies. Uh, we are not um, pricing, uh, we're, we're not internalising the environmental costs of production of goods coming from the yeah, okay, so I've got to finish. We've already uh, run in very tight on time, but I want to ask two questions for and get a quick answer. <laughs> Sorry. One is, if you could just do one thing right now in Australia, uh, one, you were in charge, you could, put, you could make one policy happen, what would it be? Well, as I said, you know, we've got to look at the land uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a holistic way. But, you know, one thing we need to do is put an economic value on the carbon that's stored in ecosystems, right? So if you think of that, it's an ecosystem service benefit that we need to be valuing, and 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 it has it has real economic value, and at the moment it's being ignored. So so there's there's policy needed in that area. Yeah. 
That's great. That's great. And secondly, just I quickly wanted to ask on IP, the IPCC report, uh, just briefly. Uh, well, actually, let me ask you the question a different way. In, 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 recently, I saw some work from, an, from a seminar in Canberra where all the climate change people were asked, as opposed to what should happen, what they thought actually what would happen. In, in your opinion, how much climate change are we, how much temperature rise are we actually going to see, do you reckon, over the next, I don't know, 30 or 40 years? Oh, well, it, it's not a matter of what I think. It's a matter of what all the uh, scientific analysis and modelling is, is projecting. You know, based upon on the data and the scientific knowledge we have, and that is that 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 uh, we'll have another by twenty. If we continue as we are without any significant mitigation, we'll have a further half degree uh, global warming by twenty forty. Yeah, but but I guess my question is, we know we can do something about that with extreme policy. But in your heart of hearts, as you currently stand here and survey the world, do you actually believe we'll achieve those policy goals? I mean, it is, this is a question of, of, uh, of, of belief, if you like, uh, or judgment, uh, human judgment. Yeah, I, well, let's, uh, let's cast our eye to southeast Queensland where I'm talking to you from. And as we speak, there's 60 fires or so raging in Queensland where... We've got uh, the Lamington Plateau ablaze. We've got um, the coast just south of Noosa ablaze, uh, and we're in the first week of and we're in the first week of spring, right? And, and this is unprecedented. And it was only last summer in far north Queensland we had unprecedented um, fires, followed a few weeks later by unprecedented floods. So uh, scientifically, we call these extreme climate events. And they're happening more and more, and they're going to continue to happen more and more because this is one of the one of the impacts of of climate change. You know, we talk about global warming; that's just a statistic. When we talk about one point five degrees of global warming, that's just a a simple indicator. It's what it actually is. It's the average day. It's the average daily annual temperature for the globe averaged over 30 years. Sure, sure. I understand what it is pretty, pretty well. What, yeah, yeah. So, so what, what we've actually seen, we've had one degree of global warming already. That's the thing to keep in mind. And what's happened in Australia is over the last 100 years, we've had a five-fold increase in heat wave events. So as the average temperature goes up, the, the frequency and magnitude of extreme climatic events increases and this is what we're seeing here this very week in northern New South Wales and Queensland. Now, I think as each season and year goes by, you know, the scientific, just the physical reality of what's happening will dawn upon people. And I predict, and I, and, and I believe that we will uh, see uh, a rapid turnaround in public opinion and in politics, um, certainly in Australia, uh, you know, within the next five years. That's great, Brendan. I, I think I think we're going to have to end it there because we're just going to run out of time. But that's that's an almost perfect ending. Uh, and 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 thank you very much, Brendan Mackey, for for uh, a very helpful and useful discussion there on on something we don't always go to in Energy Insiders, and that is the underlying reality of climate change. Thanks, David. And that was Professor Brendan Mackey from Griffith University um, and a lead author from the IPCC report. So, David, what was the big takeout for you from that? 
as I said, the uh, takeout from that was uh, to think about uh, carbon as a stock. You know, the, the, all the carbon that's in coal is always there. It's just whether it's held in the coal under the ground, nicely sequestered away, or whether it uh, goes up into the atmosphere, in which case it contributes to this uh, uh, massive increase in, in, uh, in ocean heat and, and global warming, and uh, which will be the uh, ruin of all of us if we don't do something about it. To, and I say all of us in a, in a global sense, if we don't do something about it fairly quickly. We, we can't cover uh, climate change every podcast here on Energy Insiders, but it's certainly something I think we need to pay attention to from time to time. And look, it's quite despairing just to see some of the comments about coal-fired generation. I mean, um, you know, the New South Wales Energy Minister, Matt Keane, this week sort of saying that he didn't see any sort of pricing competitor to coal for 10, 20, 30 or 40 years. I mean, look, I guess he was talking to the Murdoch media and he was talking to 2GB, but I guess that's who the coalition talks to. And of course, we've seen lots of suggestions recently about, um, you know, even providing some sort of future subsidies to to, to coal. And you've written a very strong piece um, this week for Renew Economy, just eviscerating that as a completely bad idea. But maybe you could tell us a bit more on the podcast. Uh, well, look, the, the general idea is, of course, that uh, uh, we want the coal generators to go away at a reasonable pace from a carbon perspective. But we also want them to go away because they are no longer fit for purpose from a business sense. We're in the 21st century now trying to run a modern uh, 21st century style economy and you can't run that when your power is coming from unreliable 40-year-old uh, generators that, are, that have to be kept alive by their owners at uh, increasingly great capital and maintenance expense, which are, uh, which are going to be required to operate in duty cycles that, at least in Victoria, they're manifestly unsuited for, uh, uh, and which are highly carbon emitting, and which, more to the point, which aren't needed. And if we had a policy, Giles, it's very simple, that, point, that say a 50% uh, renewables policy, such as Victoria and Queensland have, if that existed in New South Wales, it would provide essentially across the whole of the NEM the certainty that was required to get the new generation first. What everyone is scared about is a coal generator closing and a shortage and blackouts happening. That's a legitimate fear, but it's only a legitimate fear if we don't plan for it and get the new generation that's needed built first. And that is not, of course, new coal generators, because the cheapest form of doing it is with variable renewable energy, and you just have to firm that up a bit. Again, if I use Infogen as an example, just to finish on this little burst, they, they bought 120 uh, megawatts of uh, gas generation in South Australia, and they reckon that's going to be able to firm up about 500 megawatts or something like that of variable renewable energy, what they've got there already and some more. If you apply that across the whole of the NEM, it becomes pretty obvious you don't actually need all that much coal, all that much gas to firm up if you had enough transmission and enough variable renewable energy. Which takes us right back to where we started, which was there's not enough happening at the moment and we actually need that plan so we can get going again because, goodness me, there is an absolute huge pipeline of projects going. I mean, you know, South Australia is sort of bursting at the seams and can't wait for its new interconnector to be built um, linking up to New South Wales. So, um, look, let's just hope something happens there. David, anything else we should mention before we wrap up for the day? Uh, no, I think that's about it. There's plenty more I could say about transmission, Giles, but I'd just like to uh, thank our sponsors once again and urge all of our listeners who, who, who have some uh, advocacy role to get, to get on with getting this new transmission built so we can get on with the future to which uh, we and our descendants are entitled. 
Quite right. I don't think I can better that sort of sign-off, so I am going to thank the sponsors, Evergen and Solaray Energy. Thank you very much for your continuing and ongoing support. I'd like to thank all our listeners, and we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.